I'm reading from Acts 21.37 to 22.29. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. As the priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. 
and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are we going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Well, good afternoon. Oh, that was well read, wasn't it? She's got a beautiful reading voice. Um, some years ago, before we came to uh, Lake Mac, Marley and I attended a small church in the central western town of Coonabarabran. A small one, I say, probably had about 25 adult members. And one year we had a new minister come to the church. And uh, after he was there, after a couple of weeks, I was having a cup of coffee with him. And he commented to me what an amazing group of people God had assembled in that church. Now, to me, we were a pretty ordinary group. Like, they were nice people, but uh, I didn't see them as that amazing. And so I asked him, I said, what's so amazing? And he said, just how God has chosen people who have contacts and, and infiltrate every level of this community. He said, we've got a policeman, we've got teachers in the high school, the primary school, the Catholic school, we've got a couple of farmers, we've got a nurse in the hospital and one in the aged care home, we've got the local agronomist, we've got a stock and station agent and auctioneer, we've got the local child protection officer, we had a couple of people in hospitality, plus two guys that worked at Siding Springs Observatory. I had never looked at our, at our people that way. Um, and you can look at us from different perspectives. You can look at the different sporting bodies we're involved in, the different clubs in town, uh, different social levels we mixed in, uh, just even vastly different educational backgrounds. He really, really made me look at our people in a different way from a, from a gospel sort of perspective. Um, he also made me think or realise about my responsibility to the area of influence I had, which I probably hadn't given a lot of thought to before. And I'm sure here at Lake Mac, uh, the diversity is even greater, uh, which means we can influence and witness to even more people. Uh, there must when you get a group this large and with such a diversity. So in Ephesians 5.16, Paul tells the Ephesians to make the most of every opportunity. And here in Acts today, 
we're going to take a look at how Paul, in what must have been a terrifying experience, turns it into an opportunity to tell the gospel to that crowd there. So we're just going to work through the passage, look at what Paul does, how he does it, how he uses his past experiences to achieve his purposes, and uh, what we can learn from Paul's example, what, we, what can teach us. And I just want to look at the end, look at three applications, uh, how we can use our past lives and experiences for God's present purposes, understand who we are in Christ, not what we were, and just how to a few tips on how to overcome our fear of those situations. So as we come to look at that, it'd be good if you've, uh, I don't know what's exactly up on the border. Yes, I do. There's one up there. Um, <laughs> I wonder, I thought, gee, those singers have got good memories. But <laughs> it's amazing. Um, anyway, it'd be great if you keep the Bibles open and because I'll be referring to the passage a bit. So let's pray before we look at it. Uh, dear Lord, thank you, Lord, for your word here. Just help us to learn from it. Uh, yeah, just um, help us to really look at what Paul does and have it inspire us just to understand understand better how you're preparing people here for your purposes of ministry and, uh, yeah, how we can use and develop, uh, think about our lives and our, our the people we know and the interactions we have and think about things in a gospel-centred way. So I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where we are in the passage, Paul's been attacked by the crowd. He's been dragged out of the temple. The crowd are actually trying to beat Paul to death when the Roman soldiers come and intervene and they arrest him, they bind him in chains, and that's where we start our passage. They're taking him into the barracks. Um, and at that point, Paul speaks to the commander in Greek. Now, that officer, for whatever reason, and it doesn't say how, why he thought this, but he thought that Paul was an Egyptian rebel, and when Paul speaks in Greek, obviously he realises his mistake, and Paul says to him, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, the citizen of no ordinary city. Now, Tarsus was a wealthy city in central southern what is Turkey today, and it was uh, quite a wealthy city. Uh, it was known as a centre of culture and education. But, and that has an impact on the Roman commander because when Paul asked to be allowed to address the crowd, uh, he gives permission. Now, the commander may also have thought that the crowd had made the same mistake he had, thinking Paul was, uh, was an Egyptian rebel, or maybe just knowing Paul was Jewish the same as the crowd, uh, that was why he let him speak. Whichever it is, um, he lets him, Paul speak, hoping Paul can sort this out with the crowd. Um, so then Paul motions to the crowd, he's going to speak, they quieten down, but then he speaks to them in their own local language, um, and hearing their own language, they get even quieter. What an amazing turnaround. Paul's gone from being a victim of this out-of-control crowd, under arrest, in change, to taking control of the situation. Now, how has that happened? A lot of it's through the use of language, Greek and Roman, sorry, Greek to the Roman and Aramaic to the Jews, but you can't ignore the fact it's a brilliant manoeuvre by Paul. He's gone from a beaten prisoner to now he's running the show. He seems to be in total control. Um, and Paul hasn't even used his ace card yet. That is, he's a Roman citizen. Why doesn't he just tell that to the Roman commander right away? 
because there's an opportunity here for the gospel. Paul is more concerned out of love and compassion for this crowd that hates him and wants to kill him. So what is Paul going to tell the crowd? We know Paul's a brilliant theologian and debater. He's debated the best uh, Jewish rabbis in synagogues all over the place. Um, he's also debated Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, it says, in Athens. So he could have given the crowd a brilliant lesson in Old Testament theology or philosophy. He doesn't. He gives his testimony. He goes personal. He tells them his background. He's a Jew, just like them, from Tarsus, which would imply a level of education. Um, we know from other parts of the Bible that Paul was considered highly educated. Uh, in a few more chapters, Paul will be before King Agrippa, and even the king will refer to Paul's great learning. Um, we learn here there's two ways to become a Roman citizen as a reward for great service to the empire, particularly military service, or to purchase your citizenship. Now, Paul being Jewish, it's probably unlikely that he received his citizenship for military service. Um, so uh, it would imply one of his ancestors has bought their Roman citizenship. So the wealthy families in Tarsus, if Paul comes from one of those, they would have their sons educated and sent to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of a great rabbi teacher. Um, Gala, Gamaliel, Gamal, however you pronounce it, Paul's teacher, he was probably the most or the greatest rabbi teacher of his day, and there's still teachings of Gamaliel in today's Jewish Torah. So Paul lays down his credentials to the crowd. He's extremely well-versed in Jewish law and tradition. Then in verse, verse 3 there, he says something really interesting. He says to the crowd, I was just as zealous for God as any of you. Paul's saying that he was zealous to be right with God through the law and traditions of Judaism. But the big word in that statement is was, not anymore. To explain this even better, I want to quote to you from Philippians 3. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." What Paul is about to tell this Jewish crowd is he has seen the light, quite literally, on the Damascus Road. Paul then reinforces just how zealous he had been. He even had the backing of the Jewish leadership. He persecuted the church, verse 4, to their death, imprisoning both men and women and under the authority of the high priest and the Jewish council in Jerusalem. Um, now, Paul tells tells that story several times through the Old Testament, tells of his being a persecutor of the church. Now, that could have been a great source of shame for Paul. He could easily have been paralysed with guilt for that. But Paul uses it over and over again to tell of his salvation and to just illustrate the transforming power the gospel has had in his life. 
So Paul next relates his Damascus Road experience of meeting Jesus. And he, want, he wants to make a couple of huge points to the crowd. One is the voice came from heaven. So it's of God and the voice is Jesus. Now it's safe, pretty safe to assume a lot of the people in the crowd would know a fair bit about Jesus or this, this or the way. Um, and know the, a bit about what the followers believe. So back uh, last week in chapter 21, verse 20, James tells Paul of the many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who have become believers. So a lot of them would have known about this. So Paul goes on. He relates all that happened to him on the road to Damascus and how then in the city of Damascus Ananias was sent to Paul to return his sight Tell him to be baptised and have his sins washed away, calling on Jesus' name. So in those verses, we have Paul explaining to the crowd why he's no longer seeking God through the law, because Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly and righteousness before God is found by having your sins removed through faith in Jesus. And there's some extra information there, which I think is really helpful for us. Uh, and Ananias says... The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. That's a great reassurance for us. Paul writes a lot of the New Testament and he has his writings delivered directly to him from Jesus himself. And you'd think a bit of this, what Paul tells the crowd, would have grated on the Jews. Um, he tells them that Jesus is risen. He speak, Jesus speaks from heaven, uh, that sins can be washed away through Jesus. He, he claims he has authority from the God of their fathers. And they, but they don't react to any of that. It's not until verse 21, when Paul says that God sent him to the Gentiles, that the crowd explodes. Um, so just before that, though, verse 18, Paul tells the crowd, the Jewish crowd, that God told him not to go to Jerusalem and preach. As he, um, the, and why? Because his testimony is not going to be accepted there. And it appears there in verses 19 and 20 um, that God, Paul argues a bit with God. He says, he makes the argument, because the people in Jerusalem know this history uh, of his history of persecuting the church, they will accept him. But God says, no. And here we have God being proved right, right here at the temple gate. Um, so at the mention of the Gentiles, um, that is anyone not a Jew, the crowd goes off its head. The Roman commander directs his men to take Paul into the barracks and be flogged, then questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Um, it's a different world, isn't it, where someone can be flogged and then questioned. And it may not have been legal to flog a Roman citizen without a fair trial, but the implication is that uh, for a non-Roman, it would have been open slather. There'd be many countries in the world today where this still happens, where we hear of people getting locked up with no trial, no legal protection. In the Western world we live in, we have hundreds of years of Bible-based reforming action that has changed the world. Ref reforming based on the rights of men and women created in the image of God, entitled to basic human rights. That's a Christian heritage we should treasure, particularly as people try to trash it today, um, ignore our, and trash our Christian heritage. 
And we should remember that Christians are the salt of the earth, a powerful preserving force and an agency to stop decay. Uh, when we were living in Coonabarabin, for many years our local federal member was John Anderson. Uh, he was also for several years the Deputy Prime Minister. And I went to a meeting in Coona once and heard him speak and he told us a really interesting thing, I thought, he's a Christian guy, but he told us they had learned that the Chinese Communist Party had done studies of Western democracies to find out what was the greatest threat uh, to the communist, Chinese Communist state. And they decided it was not the West's military power, not its economic model, not even democracy. But the biggest influence on the rise of the West was due to biblical Christianity. And that Christianity, with its teachings of the value of human life, of dignity and basic rights, posed the biggest threat to communism in China. And to this day, they're persecuting the church in China. And Paul's rights, look, they're not universal rights then. They're rights awarded to Roman citizens for its citizens, to Roman Empire, sorry, to its citizens. So the Roman citizenship would have had a great thing to have. Uh, the Roman commander's now alarmed that he's even put Paul in chains. So Paul's able to use his Roman citizenship there as an asset in that situation. Um, so let's just think for a second about what are the attributes at play here that are Paul's benefit from his past that he's using in this situation. He's got multilingual skills. He's got his Jewish ancestry. His, his birthplace, he's coming from Tarsus. His Greek and Jewish education. His conversion experience. Even his having been a persecutor and murderer of Christians. The question for us is how can we use our past, even our pre-Christian past, to accomplish God's present and future purposes? So that's our first point of application. All of us in Lake Mac have a past. We have different educations, different ethnicity, different economic backgrounds, all sorts of things. Some, uh, like Paul and me, have much to be ashamed of in our past. I was a drunken blasphemer and more. There would be people here who have past trauma, divorce, uh, loss, addictions, looking back on a shameful or traumatic past can be paralyzing. Paul could have been crippled with guilt by his shameful past. He persecuted Christians to their death, yet God chose him as his vehicle. God chose him to spread the gospel of Jesus around the Roman Empire. You too have been chosen by God as his representatives here and now. Don't let your past, whatever it is, smother your effectiveness for the kingdom. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Romans 8 says, There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Claim these words. They are liberating. What can God do? What can God do with the shy, the old, the sick, the divorced, the traumatised? 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world. He chooses people like me and you. 
Not many of the people you know, people outside of church, not many of them are going to hear this sermon. Your non-Christian workmates, family, friends, neighbours, they're probably not going to hear Rob and Liam preach. But most people will listen to you if you share your story. And because of your imperfect past, they will relate to it. Paul is able to put his wicked past behind him even as he tells people about it. How can we do that? Well, that's our second point. It's knowing who you are now in Christ. That's how it Paul does. He claims has his own, the promises of God, that he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Satan will try to use guilt and shame to neutralise you. How does Jesus defend himself in the wilderness against the accusations of Satan? He does it with the word of God, with the Bible. What does the Bible say about who you are now if you're in Jesus? Galatians 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are not that person anymore. You are now a child of God. You have been redeemed and forgiven. So like Paul in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, I'm paraphrasing a little, but he says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Now, he's not saying he's forgotten. Obviously, he hasn't because he keeps talking about it. He's saying it no longer has power to, to, just, to, to hurt him. Jesus has liberated him from its guilt and power. Lake Mac Church, you are chosen by God and he has prepared you for your ministry in Jesus. And when you do it, there's going to be a lot of people ridicule you. Jesus is very upfront about that. If they persecute you, remember, they persecuted me first. So that's my last point. Um, how do we deal with, with the fear of, of rejection and ridicule? Because those are very real fears. One way is a right motivation of love for the lost. I reckon the most amazing prayer in history is Jesus on the cross praying, Father, forgive them to the people who hate him and reject him. And Paul in our passage today is desperate to get the message of the gospel to this crowd that wants him dead. The focus of Paul at that point was not, to, not on himself. He sees the terrible need of the crowd. They're enraged with hate, but they're also heading for a terrible day of judgment if they do not repent. He looks at their need for Jesus, not his need. Christians have a different perspective than the rest of the world. Our eternity is secure. People's greatest need is to have their sins dealt with perfectly and forever, and we have that need. Paul takes the opportunity to give his testimony. Paul does that over and over again in synagogues, before kings, before governors, Many of us are terrified in situations far less intimidating than that. And I reckon nearly every time I've spoken to someone about my faith, I've gone away agonising that I could have said it better and why didn't I say that? Uh, even as a new Christian, I found it very hard to say the name Jesus. It's much easier than just to go with a generic God. 
there's some great encouragements from Jesus that he says he will be with us and guide us in these intimidating situations. Never will I leave you or forsake you, he says. He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Luke 12, uh, 11 to 12 says, when they drag you into their meeting places or into police courts and before judges, don't worry about defending yourselves. What you'll say or how you say it, the right words will be there. The Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say when the time comes. Knowing we have a saviour with us through that indwelling spirit will help us overcome fear and we can call on his help. I just want to close by telling you a true story. Uh, I heard this uh, Tim Keller tell this story and I repeat it because I think it's a good example. He was in his church in New York and uh, there over a few weeks he noticed a new woman coming to church. She'd get in late, sit up the back and as, as soon as the service finished, she'd leave so she didn't have to talk to anyone. She made a quick getaway. So he decided after a few weeks he was going to catch up with her. So as someone else closed the service, he got out the front and he met her coming out and uh, cut her off at the pass. And he did this. He introduced himself and he asked her a bit about herself. And she said, look, I'm not a Christian, but I'm intrigued by it and I've just been coming along to learn more. And he said, well, what's brought this on? She said, well, I work in the city. I work in a large media organisation. And some weeks ago, I made a big mistake at work and I did something really stupid and I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I was called in to see the bosses and I was pretty confident I was going to get the sack. She said, my manager said he, he came in with me and when they asked her for an explanation of what she'd done, he stepped forward and said, this is not her fault, it's my fault. I should have trained her, it's my responsibility. I should have had better oversight. And she said that would have cost him some personal and professional credibility, but she walked out that day still with a job and she was very grateful. She went to her manager's office later to thank him and just ask him why he had done it. Um, and, and she said to him, I've had many, plenty of managers take the credit for my work. I've never had one take the blame before. And he said to her, look, I'm a Christian. My whole life is built on a man who took the blame for me. And she said, that's why I'm here. I want to find out more about this man. Not many of us are going to stand before raging crowds or even kings and governors, but we will stand before workmates, neighbours, friends, family. We need to stand out. When you forgive, when you repay evil with good, when you respond to harsh words with gentleness, when you put others before yourself, you will stand out as different. Yes, you, will, you are going to be vulnerable, but that will also open doors to tell your story about how Jesus has changed you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, just thank you for, for the example that Paul sets here for us. Just, uh, just thank you for the way you've equipped all these people here, so many people in Lake Mac with uh, so many different skills and backgrounds, Lord, and so many so many areas of society we all reach into. Lord, just pray you'd give us opportunities. Give us words to say. Give us courage, 
Lord, and protect us too. Protect the vulnerable amongst us too, Lord. Help us to learn to trust in you, to know that indwelling power of the Spirit that you have promised to give and we have. Help us to be people of prayer in those situations. Lord, just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.